0: A
1: Japanese
0: on with an
1: old
0: Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're going to be discussing some unusual places around the world
2: that might be inspirational for our gaming. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on?
1: Well, we're still consuming lots of books, lots of TV and lots of films. In fact, I think over the last few months I've probably read more in that time than I have in the last few years. Being hmm. been able to plough through the many, many, many books that i've got lying around here uh, as we continue finding fuel for our baccaroni specials
0: so these baccaroni specials are going out on the alternate weeks in between the regular episodes
2: such as the one you're listening to now and as matt said we are discussing all sorts of weird films some really quite unusual ones and i think the episode we're going to record later today will feature at least one extremely odd one and uh, yeah some unusual books and I guess, some unusual choices in television as well. As ever, these are things that we think might inspire your games. They're certainly going to inspire ours. And now on to our main topic, unusual places. In one of our recent Baccaroni specials, I was talking a little bit about a YouTube series which covered a lot of strange places and how inspirational I'd found that for thinking about stuff in games. And I think this probably led to this episode where we were thinking about real-world locations, unusual places around the globe, and how much we, probably each of us, rely on places like that as inspiration, even if we don't use them directly the kind of ideas that they plant in our heads often end up in our games. And we thought it might be interesting in this episode to talk about a few such places that we've read about or seen documentaries on and talk about the kinds of things that they might inspire in our games. Right.
1: So having... Consumed a lot of various different documentaries and weird TV shows over the uh, over the last few months because well, Tiff loves Ghost Adventures for one thing, uh, so I end up getting to see a lot of those those kind of shows. I think this one did actually feature on the one of these paranormal investigation uh, programs, and when I heard about it and the well, the folklore and the myth the mythology that surrounds it, I thought hang on a minute, I, I don't know if I must have heard about this years ago until I subconsciously had this filter into a scenario of mine, but it sounds like it could have been the direct inspiration for one of the, one of the scenarios I wrote quite a while back, called The Seventh Circle, regarding this house on Eileen Moore, the, the island famous for its lighthouse disappearances at the beginning of the 20th century. But Whereas the actual inspiration I drew from that scenario was actually from Edge of Darkness with the hot cell, that's the mini TV series, not the mm. uh not the Call of Cthulhu scenario, where it's involving eco eco terrorism or eco disasters and so on. But anyway, but this place seems to seems to fit the bill quite well for that scenario. It's in the Czech Republic, about about fifty, uh, 50 odd kilometers north of Prague, called Huska Castle. Uh, it's a quite an old structure, I and mean, it goes back to well, the second half of the 13th century. It's a Roughly square construction with this open courtyard in the middle of it. uh, Nice green roof and solid stone walls that's built on a kind of cliff face or or cliff top rather that overlooks, uh, overlooks a nearby town. There's no real strategic benefit of the building being there. And also there's no signs that there was ever any facilities built there to... Kind of facilitate people living there, I and mean, there's, there's a chapel. There isn't any kitchens or anything, uh, or even a water supply up there. It was just built on this big flat piece of rock. Although that that rock is said to have one little prominent feature in folklore, it's supposed to have a bottomless hole that's a gateway to hell. Oh, nice. Yeah, I thought, hey, this this, def- this definitely works for something. I can I can use this chapel that was included in the building, the floor of which is supposed to have covered that hole and stopped these. Kind of weird bat things or these half human half animal hybrids that used to climb out in the dead of night and terrorize the local area
2: you mean nightgaunts they were nightgaunts mad <laughs>
1: yeah there could be nightgaunts they could be or could, well, could be a whole range of other creatures ghouls thinking of like almost like part dog part human a whole range of mythos beasties that come up from this big black hole in the ground but the, the place has got on one hand a quite mundane history the reason why no one had actually bothered putting any facilities in there for people to live there is because it was never intended to be to be lived in. Hmm. It was basically a, think of it almost like a town hall in the sense that it was an administrative building that was designed to, as it says, administrate the various royal properties in the area. And various properties then fell into the hands of the aristocracy. This building lost its um, lost its original meaning, so it passed hands through various a- aristocrats. And eventually, when you came to the Second World War, The Nazis took it over, and of course, plenty of rumours of them conducting occult experiments and trying to harness these forces of darkness underneath the floor of the chapel, and that supposedly there were scratching sounds heard underneath the floor, coming from this covered-over pit. It's all all very hyperbole, but there's again some very widely shared bits of supposed encounters there. Apart from these creatures having flown out of this pit in the middle of the night, one thing that was practiced i suppose is the best word was that prisoners from the local prison or jail were taken up to this hole when it when it was still open and given kind of a choice either hey you can be executed or we can conduct a little experiment with you we can put a rope around you and basically throw you down the hole and you report back what you see because we want to know what's down there because no one apparently has ever been down to the bottom of this hole so they have no idea how far down it goes. Of course, the the main story is that when they lowered someone down on a rope, they descended into the darkness. Cue that prearranged Cthulhu signal of a scream, <laughs> and they start hoisting the guy up, and to find that this fellow that they dropped down there in his um, early thirties came back up as looking like he'd aged about thirty years in the space of a few minutes. Uh, white white hair, a very Ghostbusters esque. Yeah. and was con- declared a gibbering wreck put in the local asylum and died a couple of days later
0: this was before like phones right they couldn't send me down with a phone on a long cable this is a long long time
1: ago
2: hundreds of that's years that's
0: a real shame
2: <laughs> because that would have worked out so much better it would at least you would have got that fantastic funnel line yeah <laughs> But
1: yeah, having a look at the place now, it's uh, still held by, I think it's again, the local aristocracy or the local uh, equivalent of landed gentry that own the place but it's more become a bit of a tourist destination in the last couple of years when it's been opened up to the public so people can go there and visit and it does it has featured on a few tourist guidebooks and like i say there was a i think it was ghost investigations or ghost adventures one one of those type of programs that went to go and have a look at the place and they concluded yes this place is
2: haunted have they ever been to a place where they haven't concluded that
1: so, yeah, someone some that's thoroughly messed up, weird, and ripe for exploitation in a scenario. What is down that hole, and will it one day get out?
0: <laughs> you like holes in the ground, Max. You In one of our previous shows, you talked about is it the Minnesota Money Pit.
2: The Oak Island Money Pit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just wondering whether you could open up that hole in the ground to bungee jumpers go down there stretch the bungee out and come back up age 30 years
1: it's kind of the reverse of anti-aging or botox equivalent <laughs> there's hey you want to look long no 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 you want to look old don't you you want to have that hair changed a permanent shade of white <laughs>
2: <Whee>! <laughs> with what you were talking about with the nazis having occupied it and the weird history and so on i was wondering whether perhaps this might have been an influence on the keep uh, the f paul wilson book
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! Uh, Very much when I was hearing that when they were saying about particularly occult experiments and the fact it Mm. overlooks the town, that it's away from Mm. everything else. Oh, it's screaming that F. Paul Wilson used this as a as an inspiration.
2: Mm. Mm. So if
1: you go around knocking out the walls, you might find a copy of the Necronomicon or other various mythos tomes that work their way into that book. (laughs) They didn't they didn't make it into the film so much, but yeah, the the book for the keep is full of mythos references.
0: Mm. oh is it oh yeah there's
1: loads of them yeah i mean they they knock out the i say knock out the walls and they find this whole array of mythos tomes that are hidden there by the, uh, the former occupant <laughs>
2: brilliant i mean the film is interesting i think it's a glorious failure but it's it's still a mess
1: big man in rubber suit i'm the bad guy
2: <laughs> <laughs> how about you paul what have you got for us
0: well, both of my places are places that I've visited. I mean, I say both. If we if we get time to do two, I don't know if I will or not. But um, they're both places I've visited. And they're both in a weird mystical realm called the United States of America. Mm. And yes. And our, on our last trip there, we flew into, well, we were planning the trip. And my wife had got the, I was going to say the map out. But she, obviously, it was Google Maps. Uh, and we're looking at it. And she's saying, well, if we fly into Seattle and drive across the top, you know, we've got a couple of weeks and we'll we'll drive all the way across to Indianapolis. It's a long way, you know, to go to Gen Con. But it'll be, you know, there'll be some things. And I'm saying, yeah, that sounds really good. But she's like, well, there's really very little there. And I'm like, well, let's have a look at the map. So we sort of zoom in a bit and she's like, there's nowhere of real interest. And I'm like, well, she spotted Badlands, um, the uh, the national park, which obviously was great. But then I spot like, hold on, there's uh, there's Missoula, Montana. David Lynch comes from there; he was born <laughs> there. That's not that interesting necessarily to visit. But then I spot Deadwood, and Lucy's like, "Oh, Deadwood, yeah, I know that. We watched the TV show." Then I spot, and this is my place, somewhere probably you're all familiar with, the Devil's Tower. Oh yes, I'm like, there's Devil's Tower, and Lucy's like, "What? <laughs> like Devil's Tower? We got a detour up there." You felt this strange compulsion to go, did you? I did. (laughs) I did feel a strange compulsion.
1: You you should have taken along the Deadlands scenario and ran that there. Oh, I don't know that. I'm fairly sure there is one set around Devil's Tower, yeah.
0: Right. So just in case people don't know, this is the the rock tower that features prominently in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the 1970s Spielberg movie, and the one which is lovingly crafted by Richard Dravers from Mashed Potato. (laughs) Yeah, so... It was just quite an experience, you know, driving up there because it's situated on, you know, the sort of Black Hills in uh, northeast Wyoming. So it's near the Black Hills, but the the land is kind of, I guess, fairly flat around it. I mean, maybe you sort of gently rolling hills. It's not the really hilly area. So you come over the crest Of the you know the horizon or the 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 hills and you know bang there it is it's just like standing up you can't miss it even you know it's a long way off but it's like wow that is really impressive we drove over there and we had a a bed and breakfast which actually that might be my location rather than Devil's Tower but just a little bit about Devil's Tower so Devil's Tower is this strange kind of uh, like mountain like shape. So Devil's Tower is some 265 metres from its summit to its base. Obviously, the whole structure is you know, quite a lot higher um, above sea level. But yeah, so it's, it's a very prominent thing. And there's nothing else you know on the plains around it that, that is anything like it. It's made up of these, somebody described it as a bunch of pencils, a hmm. hand holding a bunch of pencils. If you glued them all together and took your hand away, it's a bit like that. Loaded little hexagonal rocks. sort of stuck together and these are formed from i'm gonna see if i can say this properly phonolite porphyry a substance a bit like granite so this is a volcanic kind of rock it's debatable whether it was an actual volcano or whether it was a kind of a, a plug of volcanic sort of lava that sort of came up to the surface but didn't actually break through to make a volcano but either way that's kind of what it is so if you picture there was like a volcano And then there's just that's gone cold and there's just the lava and you strip everything else away from it and you're just left with a plug of cold lava. That's kind of what we've got here. So it's it's theorised that that plug of lava was pushing up through the ground, went cold and set like, well, as rock, not like rock. And the rest of the ground is eroded away. I mean, that's mind-boggling that Mm. like that much ground because the rest of the ground is just sedimentary rock. That's all like eroded away is... I mean, I guess we're talking huge timescales. But anyway, so that's
2: why we've got this very unusual structure here. You were also talking about the fact that they were hexagonal. That puts me in mind of the giant's causeway.
1: I was thinking exactly the same thing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a similar kind of thing. Is there any correlation between the way they were formed?
0: I'm not sure. I mean, I guess so, Scott. Yeah, and and there are other structures around the world that have that similar kind of crystalline, if that's the right word, kind Mm. of crystalline structure. Now. It was found by white settlers in the kind of mid-1800s, but obviously there'd been Native American people there, and they held it sacred, and they had or have a different name for it. And it's known as the Bear Lodge, or like the bear as in the animal lodge, and various other names. Now, there's been some debate about changing the name but it's been rejected because it's figured that it would harm the tourist industry. So I'll use the name Devil's Tower just because that's the, the accepted
2: one. And that's how it's known uh, in, in the vicinity of where it is. With the White Settlers having given it the name The Devil's Tower, is there any folklore mm. and mythology that explains that name?
0: Yeah, it's believed, from what I read, it was a mistranslation. So I think there was a translation, something about bad gods, a bad god's tower, and this became oh, bad god must be devil, so devil's tower. Mm. And probably the most evil thing you're going to find when, when you write up the show notes, Scott, is devil's tower without an apostrophe.
2: Ooh. <sighs> okay.
0: Yeah, I know that's going to sting,
2: but the way it is. (laughs) Sorry, just as an aside then, the title of Finnegan's Wake does not have an apostrophe in it because it's a wordplay. And James Joyce wrote it as kind of an instruction that he's talking about Finnegan as a representation of the Irish people and Finnegan's as in all of Ireland should wake up, Finnegan's Wake, as well as it being a play on Wake as in funeral customs. And Devil's Tower here without the apostrophe. I mean, it's like an instruction to these devils to tower over over you and take control of the land
0: well the one i would have thought you would have quoted scott was devil's reef because isn't devil's reef without an apostrophe as well uh, also without an s it's just devil reef oh right i remember there was something that i was getting wrong about it
1: yeah anyway <laughs> i can just imagine a very disappointed deep one sat on the top of this thing looking around and going where's all the water gone i'm in the middle of a fucking desert glub glub yeah <laughs>
0: So in Native American culture, in the Kiowa and Lakota tribes, they have a story of a group of girls who were being chased by bears. And the girls prayed to the Great Spirit to save them. And the Great Spirit made the ground rise up towards the sky, and so the bears couldn't reach them. The bears stood at the side and clawed at it, which made these kind of indentations in the side of the rock. The tower reached so high that the girls ended up in the sky, and would turn into the Pleiades, the, the huh. constellation.
1: Huh. One way to get to Carcosa.
0: Oh, is, the, is that the Pleiades? Yeah.
1: It's mentioned repeatedly in the uh, original yeah. chamber story, because it's in one of the songs, where songs of the Pleiades shall sing.
0: Yeah. Right. So anyway, so that's all, you know, it's a fascinating place to visit. It's a beautiful place to visit. It was, uh, there are 128 national monuments in the in the United States, and this was the first one established in 1906 by Theodore Roosevelt. Lucy and I and uh, the kids we stayed at this bed and breakfast nearby because there isn't much in the surrounding area. You know, there are some towns away off, but there's miles and miles of just sort of open farmlands. I guess so there is a B and B, and we stayed in this B and B, and it's like I don't know, say. 10-15 miles from Devil's Tower and it's got a great view of it so we can see it from the bedroom window and we get talking to the the people who own the bed and breakfast and she's telling us how the building where we're staying you know it's not that old it was sort of built I think in the 1990s it was built by a couple I think maybe I'm gonna, I want to say from California and they came up here to Wyoming to escape from the apocalypse that was going to occur with the <laughs> Millennium Bug. Do we have to explain the Millennium Bug to people? Because uh, it's now kind of like 20 years ago, oh, so God, maybe yeah. there are people that don't remember it. But
1: It, it spawned all these horrible things called Millennials. Mm. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> it came true, Matt. Oh, my God, they're everywhere.
2: So very briefly, the Millennium Bug was a problem with the way that dates were coded in older computer systems whereby they were just given two-digit dates instead of four-digit ones so that when you reach the end of the millennium that it would automatically go back to 1900 instead of 2000 and yeah zero zero yeah, yeah that's right and It's seen as being a non-event these days. What was all the fuss about? Nothing bad happened. And that's because a lot of people put in a lot of work to make sure nothing bad happened. I mean, this is a clear lesson for our times in that if you do your job right and actually put preventative measures in place and act responsibly, no one notices But if you just let stuff go horribly wrong and run out of control, well, that makes the news. Thank God we don't live in an age where stuff like that could happen.
1: I remember as my 16-year-old self on New Year's Eve, looking at the clock frantically thinking, I've got to save all my stuff on disk in case my computer suddenly fails, just stops working. On floppy disk. On three and a half inch (laughs) floppy disk, yeah. (laughs) and trying to cram all these text files on there of all the uh, like schoolwork I'd been working on and yeah, going through and going, right, is this one full? Click, right, next, click. And just doing this for about a couple of hours trying to get oh, everything off wow. the hard drive. And then realising that I was still doing it about five minutes after midnight uh, when the when I finally realised, oh yeah, there's fireworks going outside. Nothing's happened. Oh <laughs> shit, that was a waste of an evening, wasn't it?
0: <laughs> I knew Matt would be partying. I just knew it. <laughs> So anyway, they they moved up to this bed and breakfast, and there they were. And, you know, the apocalypse didn't come, but there was some problem with, I think, like the central heating or the boiler or something, and it was creating, I guess, like carbon monoxide or something like that. I'm not quite sure what the, the effects of that are, but the effects were that the husband was badly affected by it and started to lose control of his senses somewhat and ended up chasing his wife around the house with an axe. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if this has any, like, medical veracity that that would happen or not,
2: but um, it's a good story. Yeah, a carbon monoxide poisoning can cause all sorts of strange delusions, paranoia, right. memory loss, stuff like that, so yeah.
0: Oh, there we go. Yeah, so that that, that sounds about right then. but if you like the funniest part of the story was the woman told us this and then she said this guy chased his wife around with an axe well and the second time he did it you know she decided to leave him I'm like what the second time the first time was okay second
2: time just too much
1: he was just doing some shining reenactment or cosplay <laughs> what was the what's yeah. the big deal
2: <laughs> I thought you were about to say that the punchline was that they still got the same boiler
0: oh <laughs> No, so uh, I think she managed to get the place for a, you know a bargain price, and there was one thing nearby that I wish we'd taken a photo of, which was is it, like I say, a very rural area. That there wasn't much around. We were like driving around trying to find the, the Airbnb, and we stop and look at a, a signpost, and it's just like a wooden post with various signs nailed to it. One of the signs, "God is love." Mm-hmm. The one below it with an arrow, gun shop. <laughs> in a nutshell in a nutshell yeah yeah so uh yeah so that's devil's tower and the the nearby bed and breakfast so you know the combo of those two yeah that was my uh, unusual
2: place what do you got for us scott well i've sort of got three for the price of one the place i've chosen doesn't exist anymore But it is the right kind of time period to be used in classic Call of Cthulhu or even Pulp. Or actually, even Gaslight. So I saw pictures online a while back of this rather striking edifice to a café or cabaret in Paris. Oh, You may have seen the same thing yourself. That was known as the Cabaret de l'Enfer. The Cabaret of Hell. The place closed down in 1950. It originally opened in 1892. Apparently, it is now the site of a supermarket, a Monoprix supermarket. But this was located in the Pigalle red light district of Montmartre and in, in Paris. The pictures that you'll see show this absolutely striking edifice the doorway is the face of a leering demon the mouth is the door itself with his tongue just dangling down over the doorway and there are all sorts of strange carvings above showing naked women in flames and demons torturing them and stuff like that these aren't paintings i mean these are like statues or carvings
1: that sounds like mike on a supermarket (laughs)
2: sadly they didn't retain all that for the supermarket which i think is a great lost opportunity
1: could even have the tagline hellishly low prices
2: (laughs) so i decided i wanted to look into this and then i realized that it was part of a larger and sort of scene in the area that there was an associated nightclub that had its entrance next door but was actually above, which appropriately enough was the Cabaret du ciel, uh, sorry Cabaret du ciel, which was the Cabaret of heaven. And I'll go into some of that in a moment. and And then it turns out there's a third associated one which I'll get into in a moment. But this first one, which is the one that I, I guess is more famous. Yeah, is really quite something. Out of the three, it sounds like it was actually the least impressive inside. It was all kind of fairly cramped and dingy from what I've seen from photographs. But at the same time, it was covered again with these great fantastic carvings of these demonic forms all over the wall and the ceiling, just leering down over the customers. When you went in, the doorman was dressed as the devil and apparently told people, enter and be damned. Considering it was a cabaret, apparently there were only occasionally entertainments there. Those there were, apparently there was a contortionist who used to change form from the devil to a snake and back again and things like that. The waiters were all dressed as devils and the glasses were all painted so they glowed with phosphorescent light. There was eerie organ music and strange lighting effect and funny things with mirrors and so on to create this generally hellish atmosphere inside. In fact, there is a contemporary account which I found online, which I'll read from. We passed through a large, hideous, fanged open mouth, in an enormous face from which shone eyes of blazing crimson. Red-hot bars and gratings, through which flaming coals gleamed, appeared in the walls within the red mouth. Near us was suspended a cauldron over a fire, and hopping within were a half-dozen devil musicians, male and female, playing a selection from Faust on stringed instruments, while red imps stood by, prodding with red-hot irons those who lagged in their performance. Crevices in the walls of this room ran with streams of molten gold and silver, which I guess were probably the lighting effects and mirrors that I mentioned. And here and there... Were caverns lit up by smouldering fires from which thick smoke issued and vapors emitting the odors of a volcano, flames would suddenly burst from clefts in the rock and thunder rolled through the caverns. Numerous red tables stood against the fiery walls. At those sat the visitors. Mister. Tompkins seated himself at one of them. Instantly, it became aglow with a mysterious light which kept flaring up and disappearing in an erratic fashion. Flames darted from the walls, fires crackled and roared. One of the imps came to take our order. It was for three coffees, black with cognac, and this is how he shrieked the order. Three seething bumpers of molten sins with a dash of brimstone intensifier. My kind of drink? Yeah, sounds like they put on a bit of a show.
0: Yeah, I just wish the uh, the cafe we went to was a little more like that. You know, what was it? Um, Bees. Yes, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I can imagine her yelling that out. (laughs) That's an unusual location
2: we should talk about. We probably should at some stage, yeah. But then, as I mentioned, there was the Cabaret du ciel, which was above there. And they were both owned by the same man, a man called uh, Antonin Alexandre, uh, Alexandre. This was blasphemous in different ways i mean the entrance oh, the edifice was blue and white and decorated with angels inside they played harp music there was a master of ceremonies for their cabarets and the role of a priest the staff were all dressed as half naked angels but at the same time they <laughs> they had this idol in there which was a massive golden pig the golden porcus, that they worshipped as a deity and decorated it with flowers and surrounded it with candles and so on at various points in the night they would invite guests apparently to become angels suspending them from wires and floating them around the rooms they put on shows fairly blasphemous shows and in little side rooms but yeah ultimately at the end of the night they'd apparently um one of the staff members dressed as father time appeared with a scythe collecting tips off everyone and then sent them downstairs to hell
1: i love the fact there's more blasphemy in heaven than there is in hell absolutely
2: <laughs> But then, when I was looking into these two, it got weirder because the two of them opened up in 1892 in one location in Montmartre, but they moved a few years later in 1895. And this enterprising rival to the, the founder of these two took over the location and set up his own cabaret there. Apparently, he had run uh, this cabaret before in brussels but moved to paris at this stage and used the location and this cabaret was called the cabaret du niant which translates roughly to the cabaret of nothingness or the cabaret of the void it was originally called the cabaret de la mort the cabaret of death Apparently, they changed this because one of the beloved locals died shortly after it was opened, and some of the locals took issue with the name and thought it was a bit too macabre. And considering what I'm about to tell you about what's inside, of all the things to complain about, the name seems pretty low down the list. (laughs) This place was decorated with chandeliers made of human bones. The tables were all shaped like coffins. The staff were all dressed up as undertakers. They had paintings on the walls that used light trickery to turn from the paintings of ordinary people to the paintings of skeletons as you passed by them. The drinks were all served in vessels shaped like human skulls and were given names after poisons or or names like, apparently they had a drink called spitting tuberculosis and another one called Asiatic cholera. Hmm. The main bar was called the Salle d'Antoxiation, but then they had these cabaret areas to one side, one of which was called the Cave of Gay Ghosts, and the other was the Cave of Sad Spectres. And they'd perform magic shows in there, basically. There was... One trick, which no one apparently could figure out how they did, where they would have someone on stage in a, a coffin who would apparently decompose into a skeleton in front of the eyes of the audience. And they also made liberal mm-hmm. use of Pepper's ghost, which we discussed in our ghosts episode, that trick involving mirrors and projections and stuff like that, to create spectres there as well. And yeah, this was something of a hit. Apparently, one of the side effects of all this was that it created a real atmosphere of eroticism in the place, all this confrontation with death. And it was known basically as a sort of big make-out spot, and people would get very frisky with each other there. And so I guess possibly at some point became the Cabaret de la Petit Mort. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> 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 Just tell me, it wasn't all just to work that joke in, Scott. But it did occur to me, well, for a start, I mean, if you just use these locations on their own, without any embellishment, these would be fantastic locations to work into a Gaslight or 1920s or 1930s Call of Cthulhu game. But I also got to thinking what a sort of mythos variant of them might be like. Because if you think about the fact that these existed in Paris in the 20th century, they obviously were not too great an affront to the morals of the people of Paris at the time. But you probably couldn't have had something like this in too many other places in the Western world, maybe in Berlin in the 1920s. But I, I can't imagine something like this working in, say, London or particularly not in the US. I can see a lot of very religious people getting very upset about it and demanding its closure. But you know, Paris, you seem to be able to get away with these blasphemies at the time. Sort of extrapolating from there, I I can just imagine people sort of playfully incorporating aspects of the mythos into all this, perhaps having tableaus of the Plateau of Leng or the City of the Elder things and stuff like that. Mm. Just little hints here and there. If you had a a group of investigators turn up in such a place and sort of just picking up these little hints here and there, that might be quite disquieting. At the very least, it would be quite weird. And I think I've had it in my head for some time to do something a bit like this as a pulp setting, as a core for a pulp mini campaign, just some weird club for people who dabble in the mythos. Not necessarily yeah. cultists, but you know, people who perhaps know a little more than is healthy. And something like this with a mythos theme would be perfect.
0: And I want to see the, the house band as well. You've got introducing... Eric Zahn on sax.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and here's uh, Mr. Pickman on Glockenspiel.
1: <laughs> I was thinking a similar kind of tongue-in-cheek thing when, you, when you're mentioning about the hell one of waiters dressed up as imps and uh, the devil on the front door. Or if it's a uh, disgruntled mythos species who have been kicked out of their traditional lairs and are trying to find somewhere to integrate in human society. Mm. Where else would they find employment but a place like that?
2: Mm. There was that film that was made in the early 70s Wasn't there that was based on the R. Chetwood Hayes stories The Monster Club And it was this club in, I think it was London, the clientele was entirely monsters of various descriptions. And you have this human going along there, the invitation of someone. In fact, it was a character based on Chetwynd Hayes himself, sort of, thank you for all the wonderful stuff you've done in getting the word out there about monsters, we want to show you how we really live now. Yeah, something like that, but populated with mythos beasties. I mean, particularly things like ghouls and deep ones and stuff like that, where they're sort of half-human anyway, would be fantastic. Yeah, or men from
1: Leng with their horns and their cloven feet and so on, yeah.
2: Tall hats. (laughs) Cover it up. Or perhaps, you know, where you've got these little rooms to one side where you've got the cabarets going on, they don't all have to be in the same dimension. You can just kind of step through one of them and just end up in this little cabaret in the dreamlands where the laws of reality just behave slightly differently
0: I'm getting a bit of a vibe of Nightbreed as well you know the Clive mm. Barker film with all those monsters in there you know coming together for their own little society or you know a kind of Buffy the Vampire kind of uh, thing as well yeah I can imagine that being a location in there or also you know as you're describing it it sounds like some of the locations in Rivers of London yeah um, in Rivers of London they go it features the Café de Paris where yeah. uh we went scott
1: yes Ah. Mm -hmm. i remember there and 16 quid for a gin and tonic
0: (laughs) sorry matt you were there as well of course you were yes yeah yeah. yeah.
1: i arrived a bit late because i had been funnily enough for for me running a game
0: yes (laughs) that's right another
1: convention on the other side of london at the time
0: no but i like the sound of that i mean it could it could be a location in a game or it could almost be like a springboard for its you know for a whole bunch of different games that location yeah. where you know you can go and sort of becomes the sort of center of a whole not a campaign so much as just a, a place to go to pick up plot hooks and to
2: meet contacts and that's pretty much exactly what i had in mind yeah
0: yeah yeah pretty interesting idea you know there's just uh so you know you go there one time and you sort of do get reference to some people that you know you're not going to meet today but you know you'll meet them next time where mm. you go and seek out whoever you want to, whoever takes your fancy, and they've all got different things that you can get involved with. Yeah, that's kind of cool.
2: Paul and I have spoken for some time about ours, but yours was fairly short. You've got a second one prepared, though, haven't you, Matt?
1: So, once again, going to uh, far-flung locales rather than uh, keeping to uh, to Europe or anything close to home. We're going to go a little bit further south than where Paul was in the US and over the border into what is now Mexico. In fact, down to, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation here, uh, Cholula, which when the wonderful guys led by Cortez came through here, they thought, here's another place where we can uh, pillage, see if we can get any more things and try and uh, put our stamp of Catholicism on the area. There's a bloody great hill over there with this little town surrounded around the bottom of this huge mound. We can put a church on top of that. And so there's this wonderfully named church, Our Lady of Remedies, which is on the top of this quite prominent mound. Cholula at this point was a fairly fairly small settlement, but uh, in the distant past, many centuries before, had been probably much up to a population of 100,000 people had lived there. But then, for one reason or another, as they had moved away in the area, particularly that that mound became less and less prominent and less of a significant place in their lives. The locals still buried their dead around the bottom of the uh, the bottom of the mound, so they they had little echoes of what was previously there, or rather, what was still there, buried under the mound. It wasn't until much later. That they realise it's actually the site of the largest pyramid on Earth. Huh. Oh, wow. That while you've got the pyramids of Giza are much larger, or much taller, this one, the Great Pyramid of Cholula, is three times the base size. Wow. It's huge. And at the time when Cortes came through, almost completely buried. The land had just taken it back. The trees had uh, started growing all over it again. And they thought it was just a natural structure, which saved it from the the rampage of the conquistadors that were going through and smashing up, kind of icon basher style, the remnants of the Aztec faith and the various other indigenous populations, their pyramids, their temples, and so on. But they just thought it was a great big hill. So they thought, hey, we'll put a church on top of it. So it's a church sat on top of the world's largest pyramid. This thing is... Vast, say so three times the footprint of the Great Pyramid of Giza, mainly because it was a combination of six structures that had been built upon generation after generation. The different uh, groups that came to live here, the different ethnic groups, all saw it as a place of worship. Particularly, I believe it was to the uh, Great God Quetzalcoatl, so one of the major figures of the of the Aztec pantheon, and that these six pyramid temples ultimately came together as one large superstructure and it wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century when excavations have been done on some of the area but not all of it because there's still this grand old 15th century it's a 15th or 16th century church uh, 16th century that a church on the top of it, which in itself is a historical landmark now, they can't uncover the whole pyramid because you'd destroy the the church on top of it. Hmm. So they've excavated three of the smaller parts towards the base and found that there's eight kilometres of tunnels that run through this thing. Wow. It's, a, wow. it's to say a massive step structure. Rather than just like the chambers and the galleries that you've got in the Egyptian pyramids, these have far more internal structures than than those. And yeah, the, the vast majority still remains buried. So the, mm. the thing that, strikes me is that you've got all these natural structures around the world or big hills. It's kind of hinted at a bit in the, um, like the Dunwich source book for Call of Cthulhu, that there's old Hyperborean constructions underneath the mounds that the Waitley's heard they their beating and drumming from in the, in the middle of the night. All these locations that you think are natural, but they harbour something, something very much man-made underneath them. And, even like to say this, this pyramid, the vast majority of it still remains underground. So the tunnels, what well, some of them have been excavated up to, say, the eight kilometers worth of them. But what else lies underneath the ground, hidden away underneath this rather grand church? Yeah, fantastic.
0: When I was a kid, I used to go on holiday with my parents. When I was about sort of ten, eleven. We'd go to North Wales, and there's various castles there, like Carnarvon Castle and so on, and you know some of them got dungeons but i was always so disappointed with the dungeons (laughs) it was like you know you this massive castle oh let's go to the dungeon you know if you want to get into the dungeon you get down there, there's like a room size of my bedroom it's like and there's like is there more levels are there more rooms no it's just like Hmm. a couple of little rooms are there any dragons no no dragons you'd expect
2: in wales there'd be dragons i was gonna say in wales
1: (laughs) not even a rust monster on the flag it's that's completely false advertising right there totally
2: yeah
0: yeah maybe they're keeping a secret from me i don't know but yeah but this you know this eight kilometers of tunnels now Mm -hmm. you're talking Mm -hmm. i could get into that that sounds great
1: but would
2: you get back out again
0: well (laughs) there therein (laughs) lies the question i'll take my iron
2: rations 10 foot pole yeah but that is crying out to be made into a pop Cthulhu stereo.
1: <laughs> I keep wondering, because I've got the, uh, kind of the Mysteries of Mesoamerica source book that Pagan put out quite a while ago now, one of the many RPG books I've yet to read. But wondering, if, if this isn't in there, then that's a criminal shame really because this is a screaming out to be used
0: i mean is it still regarded as a religious site by some people so you might not want to use it you might want to take inspiration from it but not actually use the the location
1: the church is still a say a mexican catholic church but so very much that's on the top of the structure and it is still in use Mm, mm. Uh, but now the uh say the temple underneath it's there's been little bits of archaeology done about it but again it's the fear of they don't want to bring the whole thing down Yeah, they can't excavate the whole temple because of the the historic site that's now on top of it so it's probably going to remain buried forever
2: or at least that's what they're telling you Matt (laughs) Mm.
1: Uh, if they can move great sites like the temple at Aswan I think that was near the Aswan Dam in Egypt, why can't they just pick up a Catholic church and move it a few uh, half a mile and put it somewhere else
2: Mm. (laughs) uncover that pyramid I want to see it (laughs) Yeah, but then you'll let out what is being kept trapped inside, and no one wants that, Matt. No one wants that. There's an Atlantic Ocean between me and it, that's fine. Now, it's interesting you're talking about buried pyramids like that, because there's another site that I had in mind that we've all been to, which does have, apart from anything else, a sort of buried pyramid. The site I had in mind was Avebury, which is going to be probably a very familiar name to our British listeners, but as I've discovered from conversations with people around the world, isn't really known very much outside the UK. Mm. Everyone knows Stonehenge, but no one outside the UK or very few people outside the UK know Avebury, which is a shame because I think it's a much more interesting location. But yeah, just outside Avebury is this site called Silbury Hill which is a bit like the hills described in the Dunwich Horror, in that it is just impossibly round. And the reason for that is because it's artificial. Underneath it all is this sort of stepped pyramid structure made of chalk that has been buried underneath this earth. I mean, it's not huge. I mean, it's a hillock. But it's big enough to take you a few minutes at least to climb to the top of it. Double that for me. It's pretty big, Scott. When you say hill, you tend to think of something much bigger, but I mean, it's it's not. Yeah, it's not as big as a natural hill would be, but it's still a usually impressive size. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading about an excavation that was done a while back. They, they've never really been able to dig up the whole thing. I think largely yeah. out of a fear of damaging it. But obviously, there's been a lot of exploration of it. And there is apparently some sort of central shaft that runs down the middle of it that looks like offerings were dropped down there. So they found remnants of uh, offerings of, I think, crops that have been dropped down there. So this seems to have been a religious site, which makes sense given everything else that's around there. To wonder if you want to describe what Avebury is really famous for.
1: You say you've you mentioned Stonehenge where it's a stone circle with basically a patch of grass in the middle of it. Yeah, expand that several hundred times over and have a great big village in the middle of a stone circle. Definitely one up on Stonehenge by an order of magnitude.
0: Yeah, with the road running through it. Mm. Um, so, I mean, Stonehenge is a much more... Uh, compact structure you know with with overlapping uh headstones and so on that actually make a almost a consistent circle whereas avebury the stones are you know spaced out i don't know say five ten yards apart hmm. and you know these massive stones and not only the stones that form this circle which must be i don't know half a mile across yeah I guess sure so. how, how wide across it would be maybe something like that but equally impressive is the ditch that yep. surrounds the stone so there's this ditch so from the the flat where the stones are there's a ditch and then the other side of the ditch there's a a ring of, of a mound around the ditch which accentuates the the depth of the ditch if, if my memory serves me right yeah. so this ditch i'm guessing is two or three meters deep and then two or three meters high something like that so it's a pretty significant
2: kind of earth structure as well and there are a number of the stones that are missing from around the stone circle now. Hmm. A number of them were taken down. Am I right in thinking that it was Puritans who did so? I know it was certainly for religious reasons. That They were considered to be you know, obviously pagan, which they are, or satanic, which they're not. But there were religious extremists who started trying to demolish the stone circle, and they pulled some of the stones down and buried them. But the majority of them are still there. It wouldn't surprise me that the fun police Puritans would have been behind that. Yeah. And there are additional stones as well that form an avenue that, hmm. am I right in remembering that it lines up with the sun on Midsummer? Wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> it's something like that, isn't it? Yeah, something like... Mm.
1: The main thing I remember about our trip to Avery was playing Spirit of the Century in that ditch.
2: <laughs> yes. Leaning up against one of the stones.
1: Mm -hmm. i think yeah we moved to a couple of places and rolled some dice i mean
2: this is the other thing about avebury
1: that
0: is notable you can go right up to the stones oh yes whereas stonehenge now i can remember i've been right up to the stones at stonehenge but you know now it's all like fenced off and you know roped off you can't get actually near them
2: and you have to pay an admission fee now as well Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and you know i mean stonehenge draws a, a number of visitors of a you know much higher magnitude than Avebury. Mm. I guess mainly because Spinal Tap wrote a song about
2: it. um, (laughs) Obviously that's that's probably I'm figuring that's why, I don't know. Avebury is also famous for being the location of a nineteen seventies British children's show called The Children of the Stones, which was Mm. one of these classically British folk horror children's things of the 1970s that was just designed to scare the shit out of kids. (laughs) <laughs> it
1: was today we get spongebob but back in the day when kids tv was proper we got children of the stones
2: but yeah it was all shot on location in navebury
0: yeah yeah and there's the painting from it in the uh in the manor house i think um i remember seeing that mm. i camped there a couple of times with my friend phil when we were like students uh, i think actually when i was in in school i was about 17 18 and we camped there No, it must have been a couple of years later because we were into Call of Cthulhu by then. So we went to West Kennet Long Barrow, which is a a big burial mound a few miles away. It's a National Trust place. And you could not move for people with bloody, what do you call it, Um, dowsing rods, (laughs) dowsing for energy and so on. But uh, we managed to hang around there because it's not really like policed or anything or it wasn't Mm. back then. So we just kind of sort of hid and spent the night there. And uh, I ran a a one-on-one Call of Cthulhu game for him in the burial chamber in the like the dead of night. And I just remember waking up in the middle of the night and he was asleep and like, it was like water dripping. <laughs> and I'm like, go back to sleep, go back to sleep. <laughs> it was pretty creepy. Well, that's definitely like the, the uh, most significant place I think I've played Call of Cthulhu.
2: Just to sort of describe it for any v- listeners who haven't been there... It is basically, from the outside, it looks like an earthen mound, a fairly long, so mm. I guess cigar-shaped burial mound, but the entrance to it has been excavated, you can go inside and it is basically just this, uh, what, about 20 or 30 yards long? Maybe not even
0: that. Probably not that. I mean, outside is much longer, but probably inside, more like 20, 30 feet, With some little yeah, chambers off right. to the left and right. Not very big. When you say chambers, they're basically alcoves, aren't they? Oh yeah, very small, like a you know, laboratory size, kind of just a small cubicle. Yeah, I mean I think this place off the top of my head, I think is about four and a half thousand years old,
2: something like that. Yeah, most of the sites around Avebury are they yeah, about four and a half, five thousand mm. year, years old. But also, yeah, one of, the, one of the less appealing features of West Kennet Long Barrow is that the Ministry of Works decided, I can't remember, back in the 1950s or so, when they were setting it all up for uh, public access, that it needed a skylight in it. Oh, yeah. The top of it has been partly stripped away and replaced with concrete with glass set in it, the way you'd see over um, a subway in the US or uh, over parts of the underground in London. Yeah. Yeah, just in this 5,000-year-old burial site, there is just this effectively this, this concrete and glass grating over the top so that it lets in daylight. Yeah, I'd forgotten that.
1: You think it lasted 5,000 years without having the need for a skylight? It could last for a bit longer without one.
2: Yeah. Apparently, the Ministry of Works used to be notorious for doing that. When I first went to Avebury, I went there with an old friend of mine who was an archaeologist by training, and he was spitting feathers as he was describing all the things like this around the country that the Ministry of Works had fucked up. Hmm. Hmm. But yes, if you are in the UK, either as a tourist or because you live here, and you're thinking of going to Stonehenge. I mean, by all means, do go to Stonehenge. It's worth a visit. But Avebury is not that far away. I mean, it's like half an hour's drive away. And if you want to see what a really spectacular stone circle looks like, it will, I'd say, impress the hell out of you way more than Stonehenge does.
0: Stonehenge is a kind of a must-do. You kind of got to go and see Stonehenge. But it's cool, but it's one of those things, you see it, you walk around it, you've kind of seen it, hmm. and then you go. Whereas Avebury, you could spend like a day at Avebury. It's just, oh, yeah. it's just great walking around it and go to the pub and, you know, walk up to West Kennet Long Barrow. And there's yeah. you know, just so much stuff around there to see. It's great.
2: Yeah, there's a fantastic pub there. There's a fantastic vegan restaurant just around the back of it. It is just a wonderful place for aging hippies.
0: I was going to say, be prepared to meet a lot
1: of hippies, though.
2: (laughs) And a lot of bikers when we went as well. There was a lot of those. Yeah, Yeah, I think the last time I went, there was a pagan hand fasting going on, and they were basically just roping everyone who walked past into the ceremony. Mm. that, That was quite sweet. Nice. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you very much to you for a start, whoever you are, for listening to this podcast, because obviously if you're hearing this, it's because you're listening to it. So, thank you. And if you've backed us at any stage, thank you very much for that. Your funding keeps the podcast going. And we have a few new people to thank by name. Yes, and a big
1: thanks going out to claustrophobia. And also, keeping with the singular here, many thanks to the singular, Jeff.
2: And thank you very much to Andy
1: Miles.
0: And finally today, thanks to Josh Richter. Okay, well, if anybody's got any interesting and unusual places they want to let us know about, then you can find us on social media in various places on our Discord channel. Please do share your ideas. And until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. <laughs>
2: Blasphemous